Hello, welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja, and today we'll continue our conversation on Edward Said's Orientalism. And in today's conversation, I'll be reading and talking about from bottom of page 19 to probably the bottom of page 21. Now, just to kind of do a quick recap we are in part three of the introduction. In part three, Saeed is trying to explain three aspects of his scholarly endeavor or his what he had to keep in mind to write the book. We already discussed the part one of part three, which was about his distinction and his challenge to this distinction between scientific or pure knowledge and uh, uh, you know, like just humanistic knowledge. Now we are on part two where he is answering the question of methodology. What is his method? Now, if you watch the previous video towards the end of it, he was talking about or trying to conclude his discussion as to why he has not included the German Orientalists in his discussion which he sees as a weakness of his book. But one of his reasons is also is that the work of the German Orientalists was derivative because they actually didn't go to the Orient to do their research. They actually went to the French libraries and read the French and British works of Orientalists and then based their imagination on that. So that was his final reason. So we will start reading now from uh, you know, page 19, kind of almost bottom of the page. But if you want to watch uh, the earlier video, it will come up there, sorry. And you can watch it before you delve into this one. So I will go and read a couple of passages and then come back. And as has been our style in this, we'll talk about it. What German Orientalism had in common with Anglo-French and later American Orientalism was a kind of intellectual authority over the Orient within Western culture. This authority must in large part be the subject of any description of Orientalism, and it is so in this study. Even the name of Orientalism suggests a serious, perhaps ponderous style of expertise. When I apply it to modern American social scientists, since they do not call themselves Orientalists, my use of the word is anomalous, it is to draw attention to the way Middle East experts can still draw on the vestiges of Orientalism's intellectual position in 19th century Europe. <clears throat> there is nothing mysterious or natural about authority. It is formed, irradiated, disseminated. It is instrumental, it is persuasive, it has status, it establishes canons of taste and value. It is virtually indistinguishable from certain ideas it dignifies as true, and from traditions, perceptions, and judgments it forms, transmits, reproduces. Above all, authority can indeed must be analyzed. All these attributes of authority apply to Orientalism and much of what I do in this study is to describe both the historical authority in and the personal authorities 
of Orientalism. Okay, so now we are going into the meat of his argument about his method, right? And what he's saying is that, okay, the Germans might have not actually learned the things in the field, but they all draw on the same authority. And that authority comes from, of course, the 19th century Orientalists and later Orientalists, right? And everyone else also draws on that authority to represent, right? But then the question of authority itself gets centered, which he says is part of this book, right? To question not just how does Orientalist discourse gain that authority, how is it transmitted, right? And then, most importantly, the reason he's studying it is because it's not accidental. Anything, when you claim authority in a field of study or when there is something that is authoritative, it isn't born authoritative, right? It is made into an authority, and institutions play a role in it. Individual scholars play a role in it. Libraries play a role in it, right? Canons and how they're established play a role in it. So authority of any field has the authority to determine the field, but also subsume itself into it so that it becomes kind of self-referential. So that, what he's saying is, much of what, much of, and much of what I do in this study is to describe both the historical authority and the personal authorities of Orientalism. So what he's going to then describe is not just who said what, but in which context, right? And how are they arguing their point? How are they representing the Orient? And what are they taking at what we would call the silences of the text, right? Whatever they already believe to be true within which they are writing, right? And that he's slowly leading us to the discussion of Orientalism but also discussion of Orientalism as a discourse. The moment he uses the terms irradiates, creates, right, perpetuates, we are in discourse and we are in Foucault's discourse, right? And the reason we are in there is because that's how Foucault himself describes a discourse, right? It has enunciating subjects, it has a field of study, specialized knowledge, institutions, government, civil servants, bureaus, right? All of these come together to lend meaning to a discourse, right? Let me make it a little more clear. Simply, I use this example in my classes, right? There's a lecture on discourse too, which I'll put up, but. So, for example, I use this example. How does discourse work? You're walking in the park with your child, and someone walks up to you and says, I think your kid has ADD. And you look at them and say, are you crazy? Who gave you the right to say that about my child? What a terrible thing to say, right? Now, if your teacher sends you a note, your child's teacher, and says she's having problem in the class, please take her to a psychologist or a psychiatrist and you take your child there and the psychologist says the same thing. We think your child has ADD and here is a remedy for that. All you will do, you'll not lose your temper. You'll take that person's word 
And maybe you look for a second opinion, but the reason that person saying that to you matters is because he or she is labeling your child within the discourse of medicine. You know he or she is a doctor, they are in a clinic, you have been referred to them, they have a degree on the wall that tells you they have a board certification, they have the knowledge and expertise, the authority to label people. Right? That is the power of the discourse. And that's how he is defining Orientalism as a discourse, so he will go further into that description in the next passages. Let's go and read it. Simple methodological devices for studying authority here are what can be called strategic location, which is a way of describing the author's position in a text with regard to the oriental materials he writes about, and strategic formation, which is a way of analyzing the relationship between texts and the way in which groups of texts types of texts, even textual genres, acquire mass, density, and referential power among themselves and thereafter in the culture at large. I use the notion of strategy simply to identify the problem every writer on the Orient has faced, how to get hold of it, how to approach it, how not to be defeated or overwhelmed by its sublimity, its scope, its awful dimensions. Everyone who writes about the Orient must locate himself vis-a-vis -vis the Orient. Translated into text, this location includes the kind of narrative voice he adopts, the type of structure he builds, and the kinds of images, themes, motifs that circulate in his text, all of which add up to deliberate ways of addressing the reader, containing the Orient, and finally representing it or speaking in its behalf. None of this takes place in the abstract, however. Every writer on the Orient, and this is true even of Homer, assumes some Oriental precedent, some previous knowledge of the Orient to which he refers and on which he relies. Additionally, each work on the Orient affiliates itself with other works, with audiences, with institutions, with the Orient itself. Okay, so we are further moving into Orientalism being a discourse, right? So he's explaining his methodology further, and he's saying, I'm looking at these texts from these two angles, strategic location and strategic formation. The strategic, strategic location is how does the author locate the text, right, with regard to the Orient. And the strategic formation is how do texts relate to other texts? What do they rely on, right? Because here is the biggest problem that he's, these authors are facing, the problem of grasping and representing the Orient to a Western writer. The question is, can that be just a true representation? Can that be an unmediated rep representation? Discursively, not. That's what he's saying. That's why every Orientalist has to deal with it, how to represent the Orient to Western audiences. The question of representation becomes huge, 
right? And that representation then is not in isolation. What he's trying to teach us is that it relies on other texts. It relies on how others have represented the Orient, right? And that any writer writing about the Orient is already working in that contested domain where knowledge is already present and everyone is looking to some precedent, something that became before them. I mean, there's a reference to Homer. So there is no originary moment in Orientalist writing where someone can say, I have rendered the Orient transparently, right? Uh, every writer on the Orient assumes some oriental precedent, relies on some previous source. More importantly, they're also talking to each other. They're also reading contemporary works, right? And this, each work on the Orient affiliates itself with other works. Thus, what we have is even when we are reading an individual work, and remember, he had cautioned us not to read text abstracted from the larger context within which they are produced, right, in the first part of the introduction. So what he's saying is that these texts are not standalone texts. If you look at it strategically from these points, their formation and their strategic location, they are connected to other Orientalist texts. So at the end of the day, what we then get is representation of the Orient, Orient directed towards Western audiences, but which relies on a larger discourse, larger structures of other productions about the Orients. So even if you claim that you will make Orient speak for itself in your writing, it's you relying on the resources, the way you have read the Orient, and then rendering it in that in Orientalist discourse. That's a really crucial point to understand. And sometimes my students have a problem with it, right? Because we, we all believe in this idea of individual agency and we are very reluctant to buy into this idea of over-determinism of our work. But that's what he's saying, that the field is so interconnected, there is so much work that is already there that you must know that at the end what you represent is what that discourse generates in you, the way of looking at the Orient and the expectations of its representation. In this entire process, the Orient never really speaks, right? That's the point. Ensemble of relationships between works, audiences, and some particular aspects of the Orient therefore constitutes an analyzable formation. For example, that of philosophical studies, of anthologies of extracts from Oriental literature, of travel books, of Oriental fantasies, whose presence in time, in discourse, in institutions, schools, libraries, foreign services, gives its strength and authority. It is clear, I hope, that my concern with authority does not entail analysis of what lies hidden in the Orientalist text but analysis rather of text's surface, its exteriority to what it describes. I do not think that this idea can be overemphasized. Orientalism is premised upon exteriority, that is, on the fact that the Orientalist poet or scholar makes the Orient speak. 
describes the Orient, renders its mysteries plain far and to the West. He is never concerned with the Orient except as the first cause of what he says. What he says and writes by virtue of the fact that it is said or written is meant to indicate that the Orientalist is outside the Orient, both as an existential and as a moral fact. The principal product of this exteriority is, of course, representation. As early as Aeschylus' play, the Persians, the Orient is transformed from a very far distant and often threatening otherness into figures that are relatively familiar, in Aeschylus' case, grieving Asiatic women. The dramatic immediacy of representation in the Persians obscures the fact that the audience is watching a highly artificial enactment of what a non-Oriental has made into a symbol for the whole Orient. My analysis of the Orientalist text, therefore, places emphasis on the evidence which is by no means invisible for such representations as representations, not as natural depictions of the Orient. This evidence is found just as prominently in the so-called truthful texts, histories, philological analysis, political treatises, as in the avowedly artistic, openly imaginative texts. The things to look at are style, figures of speech, setting, narratives, devices, historical and social circumstances, not the correctness of the representation nor its fidelity to some great original. The exteriority of the representation is always governed by some version of the truism that if the Orient could represent itself, it would. Since it cannot, the representation does the job for the West and for the mere for lack of a better reason, for the poor Orient. And hence the Marx wrote in the 18th Boromir of Louis Bonaparte, the translation is they cannot represent themselves, they must be represented. Okay, so sorry for rushing through that reading. So, so we are approaching kind of a sort of a an important point in his explanation of his own methodology, right? We are still questioning the question of authority and what creates it and what lends it, right? But what he's also saying is that I'm focused on the exteriority of the text. What does he mean by that? Obviously, the exteriority is is the world in which the text is produced. If I'm writing an Orientalist story, Yes, I will look at the text itself and see what it calls the figures of speech and represent. But what I am looking at is representation. What is the text trying to represent? And that is connected to its exteriority because there are other knowledges, other books, other stories, politics at play that determine what goes inside the text. So in order to read an Orientalist text, we can't just read it and say, well, this is not an authentic re representation because there is no authentic representation and it's irretrievable. So the exteriority of the text, the discourse within which the text is produced already overdetermines that this is a text which is a representation of the Orient 
represented for a Western audience, produced within the authority of a body of knowledge that has already been produced about the Orient. So at a later stage, Saeed would say that, that you know, it, or he has said previously in this introduction that it becomes almost impossible for people to actually experience the Orient because the discourse already over-determines for them how they view it, right? And so towards the end of this passage when he talks about look at the evidence and the evidence is looking at the representation, right? So one mistake that he says which we ought not to make and which people challenge him on on this book is the idea of suggesting that this is not a true representation of the Orient because when you say this is not a genuine or a true representation you are imagining a true Orient right and what he's saying is that's not how we ought to read these books because we can't retrieve the true Orient right if even if it existed it would exist in a discourse that's why you know like the scholars take those liberties because well if the Orient wanted to represent itself then would we know what it's about but all we have is this representation of it right but the question of authority also is that the Orient cannot represent itself and then he goes towards the end you know to that famous um, statement by Marx from the 18th Boromir right about they cannot represent themselves they must be represented I've already talked about it that people Marxists especially challenge Said on that because that's exactly not what Marx meant there the question was of of considering the peasants who had just been given the rights to be a class and since they cannot constitute a class because of contiguity they must then accept Louis Napoleon as a father figure and hence have someone represent them and then Spivak talks about the two aspects of representation Voltaireitron which Marx uses and Dorstalen right one is representation as politically standing in for someone which we call he or she is my representative the other is representation in works of arts and all and the distinction needs to be made so overall then by this point in the introduction he is still explaining his method right and what he is now trying to take us to is his usage of Foucault and discourse what we have learned is you don't look for the real Orient in the text. You don't say this text doesn't compare to the real Orient because the real Orient is inaccessible. That this all is a question of representation. That's why we look at the exteriority of the text because what is exterior to the text, the knowledge being produced, how that knowledge impact each other, how each Orientalist relies on other Orientalists to write their works, and those things often determine the text itself right so his method in this stage of the introduction he's questioning the authority of an orientalist to represent the orient where does that authority come from how is it perpetuated through other texts through other institutions and then he will later go and explain to us how is he doing that he will mention Foucault remember this was one of the first major books 
that used in English Foucault's theory of discourse to write a huge work, right? So that's why it's also important. If you ever want to learn how to use Foucault's theory of discourse, Orientalism can be a good example. So that's all for today. We have covered from um, bottom of page 19 to almost the bottom of page 21. Let me know what you think. You know, if you have any suggestions or questions or anything that I might have missed, put it in the comments and I'll try to answer them. And after this, I'll come back and try to conclude, you know, this, the question of the method in the introduction. My hope is to conclude this and then conclude the whole introduction. That's all. Thank you so much for your time and for your support. And as always, I'll see you next time. Stay safe and peace and love.